Hello, it's Thursday at 5 p.m. and you are at the bar. I'm Jennifer Brzezaris with Independent Women's Law Center. And I'm Ines Stepman from Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to our 22nd virtual happy hour conversation about uh, issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. So our issue today um, is the process for nominating and confirming Supreme Court justices, and specifically about President Biden's selection of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, and, and this has been kind of out of the news a little bit because of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, but I think otherwise would be at the top of the docket. We are talking about once again, going through a confirmation hearing and battle for Supreme Court justice. Yeah, and today we're going to have two guests with us. Dan Ehrman is director of Northeastern University's undergraduate program for law and public policy and teaches courses on the Supreme Court. Um, and later in the show, we're going to be speaking with Mike Davis, who heads the Article Three Project and who formerly served as chief nominations counsel for Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley. I've heard you say before um, in our chats, Jennifer, that you became a conservative and you, you sort of had your political awakening um, around the confirmation hearings for Judge Robert Bork. So and, and traditionally, that's where we kind of date uh, the acrimony involved in, in these confirmation hearings, uh, too. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about watching those hearings and, um, you know, how that that kind of made you come down on a side for the first time? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, obviously dating myself here, but um, I was, uh, I think, a sophomore in college at the time, um, not particularly political. And there were all sorts of protests on campus surrounding the Bork nomination. Um, I was sort of taken aback by that. I didn't really think that courts were political and why are these people protesting and, um, you know, sort of going crazy over this nomination. Um I also had some personal familiarity with Judge Bork because my stepmother was on the faculty of the Yale Law School um, and my father's a federal judge. So I'd heard his name sort of around the dinner table, but only as, you know, in the most respectful way as, you know, this, this person who's a, a scholar. Um, and I was just shocked the, about the things that were being said about somebody who, you know, I knew my parents had the utmost respect for. Um, and I started to sort of look into it and realize that, you know, the stuff they were saying was completely crazy. Like, so Ted Kennedy goes down, um, you know, and, and gives his famous and Bob Bork's America speech where he says, and I think we have a little clip of it, but he talks about how, you know, in Bob Bork's America, you know, there's no room at the end for black people and all of this crazy stuff um, that really painted a picture of Bork as, you know, a mean-spirited racist person, which which wasn't true. Um, so that's that was sort of my, you know, realization that that judicial nominations matter, that politics matter, um, and that having sort of a neutral interpretive framework for viewing uh, constitutional law could get you labeled the most horrible things. Um, and, and that was sort of my, my political awakening. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I had not seen this ad before, by the way, and maybe we can play it, this Gregory Peck ad, but, um, I hadn't seen this before and I love Gregory Peck. So it, it, uh, made me sad in all kinds of ways, but. 
There's a special feeling of awe people get when they visit the Supreme Court of the United States, the ultimate guardian of our rights as Americans. That's why we set the highest standards for our highest court justices, and that's why we're so concerned. This is Gregory Peck. Robert Bork wants to be a Supreme Court justice, but the record shows that he has a strange idea of what justice is. He defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. He opposed the civil rights law that ended whites-only signs at lunch counters. He doesn't believe the Constitution protects your right to privacy. And he thinks that freedom of speech does not apply to literature and art and music. Robert Bork could have the last word on your rights as citizens. But the Senate has the last word on him. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination. Because if Robert Bork wins a seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life, his life and yours. Hey, Dan. Hi there. So this is Dan Ehrman. He's joining us uh, from Northeastern University. And Dan, I know you you teach a class, um, one that I recently visited. Um, That's right. Where you talk about this ad and its impact. And tell us what, um, what your perspective is on the ad, how it sort of changed confirmation politics. And I wonder how your students react to it. Well, there, there's a lot, and let me let me back up a second and just note that Bork was the fourth televised hearing ever. So Sandra Day O'Connor was the first, 1981. Chief Ju- Chief Justice Rehnquist elevation, 86, and Scalia's replacement of Rehnquist associate justice seat in 86 as well. So the context is it was only the fourth televised hearing ever. And it was just amazing timing, which is uh, a young senator from Delaware had taken over the Judiciary Committee who was also running for president. That's right. His first of many attempts. And right. So, so you know, Reagan was a bit weakened that late, you know, that, that, that lag in the second term that they talk about, right? End of his second term. Iran-Contra was was there. And I think that Democrats felt like, okay, if he nominates Bork, this is going to be a fight and we need to play inside the hearing and outside. Um, So I think the students, well, first of all, they're often surprised by how long the ad is, right? Because it's longer than eight seconds or 20 seconds. And it's grainy. It's grainy. and, And the music takes that ominous turn, right? So... And Gregory Peck may not mean anything to them either, right? So the people viewing this ad think of Gregory Peck as a champion of civil rights. They think of him as, you know, uh, you know, the character from from the books. What's the book? Ad, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Kill a Mockingbird. Every every aspiring lawyer thinks of Atticus Finch. I mean, think about how many horrible personal statements have been written for <laughs> applications about Atticus Finch. So yeah. So you know that that's the context and when I explain it to my students I basically tell them this is you know for people on the conservative side this this is the first attack. This is what started it all. This is you know th- this is where it began. And 
Uh, and the fact that the term borking or bork will be on my final exam shows the lasting impact. Right. And actually, we have a little clip um, that you shared with me, Dan, that comes from, I believe it was after Judge Bork passed away. Um, this was uh, sort of the, the uh, video obituary part that they, part of it that I think CBS. Uh, news Hour. Yeah. News Hour ran. Yeah. Do you want to, can you play that, Inez? Sure. The judge's responsibility is to discern how the framers' values, defined in the context of the world they knew, apply in the world we know. In Robert Bork's America, there is no room at the inn for blacks and no place in the Constitution for women. And in our America, there should be no seat on the Supreme Court for Robert Bork. It is hard to understand why your nomination would generate controversy. The answer is found in one word, which is tragic in this judicial context, and that word is politics. But Bork refused to withdraw, and the Senate rejected his nomination, 58 to 42, with six Republicans joining all but two Democrats in opposition. Along the way, his very name was turned into an active verb, to Bork, which meant rejection based on political grounds, and it became a conservative rallying cry. Right. So to your point, it became a conservative rallying cry. Absolutely. And and just that is a reminder also that the TV battles, you know, they even that video obituary sort of had him looking stern. Um, maybe someone would say professorial, but I think that's I think that's mean. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but well, look, as, as I said in your class yesterday, um, you know, he was not helped by his appearance, right? And and they 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 tried to paint him as Lucifer, basically. This funny little old man with a with a weird gray beard. And to some extent they succeeded. And and part of the reason they were able to succeed is because Judge Bork and, and the Bork family refused to fight back. Um, he did not view that as dignified. You know, judges don't engage in political campaigns. This this isn't what we're supposed to do. Um, and he, he refused to let surrogates go on television and, and defend him. Um, something that was very different in, in later hearings, such as Thomas and Kavanaugh, where um, by that time, you know, the, the proponents of those nominees were, were willing to fight back, and as were the nominees themselves. I, I, I totally agree. Um, the other thing, when you when you go back to Bork is, you know, the famous quote, you know, why do you want to be on the Supreme Court? And it was seen as a softball. And he said it would be an intellectual feast, right? This is a this is a thinker's thinker. This is a professor's professor. Uh, and that's probably something he believed, which is, wow, it'd be interesting cases to resolve. But that was seen as, no, you didn't give the right talking points about equal justice and everything else. And the real takeaway that I think about after Bork is candor can be punished. So the hearings, I mean, famously, a young professor at Chicago named Elena Kagan said that they've become a vapid, hollow charade. So you mm -hmm. often do not get very serious, in-depth conversations because people feel like there's no upside. Bork right. talked about his views, which were nuanced, which had been published in articles, and ultimately, he didn't get confirmed. 
So, so I have a question for you then, Dan. Um, do you think which is the primary factor? I guess it's easy to say they're both factors in some way, but which you thought, which do you think mattered more? That televising these hearings made them more of a political spectacle, and as as you just said, led them to be you know, sort of vapid and surface level, uh, not a place to discuss the types of arguments or ideas that are published in law reviews. Um, but but on the other hand, you have a, a couple other factors here. One is that the court by this time uh, has a more uh, aggressive posture towards striking down legislation um, or actively creating doctrine um, that, that interferes more and more with a wider swath of, let's say, what's on the political table at any given time. And, and then the, the other one is, of course, the polarizing, underlying polarizing of the American political parties and the people they represent. I mean, how do, how do those three factors kind of come together in Bork's hearing in a way that puts politics front, front and center uh, when in the past politics had always existed, but it was not quite so uh, acrimonious, vicious, or um, vapid in the case specifically of nominating Supreme Court justices? I mean, it's, it's a great question. I guess what I, what I was saying at the beginning, I think I'll come back to, which is timing is everything. And you just had this confluence of events. You had a quote unquote swing justice stepping down, Lewis Powell. So that if you think about, you know, the fight over Kavanaugh, Kennedy stepping down. So I think sometimes those are elevated. Um, Again, Democrats were were in charge. They could, you know, set the tone with the hearings. Um, but I also think uh, that polarization played a role. But here's something interesting: you know, six Republicans voting against Bork. Um, wow, you know, when you hear that now, that sounds almost surprising. So in some ways, those were the good old days. Um, the the I think in the future we're going to have mostly, you know between 50 and 54, you know, votes for a lot of nominees um, with the elimination of the filibuster. So overall, I think what I'm where where I'm going is Bork suggested that there's a way to not get confirmed. And I think both parties are still grappling with the lessons of it. But both of them, in terms of the candidates, tend to not say much. Um, Sonia Sotomayor, when asked in 2009, her theory on con law said it was law. <laughs> Great answer. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, like, really? You know, like, no, it's law, you know. Uh, I mean, so, you know, and she got confirmed. So I get so, in, you know, to use a sports analogy, maybe it feels a little bit more like prevent defense, right? Or the four corners right. approach. So, Dan, I, I want to ask you a question, and I know you're not a spokesman for your party. And not, um, just in the me. interest of full disclosure, Dan is, you know, far to the left of either me or Inez. Um, I, I was going to say, I was going to say far to the left of where, but sure, sure. Yeah, right. you're definitely to the left of, yeah. of us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it, it seems to me, and we've talked about this before, you and I, that Republicans might vote against a Democratic nominee, or they might even block a Democratic nominee like Merrick Garland, but they never attack them personally. They never go after their family. They never call them, you know, names. Um, and why do you think, I mean, 
maybe maybe Republicans should go harder against these against nominees because we don't seem to do a very good job of, of stopping Democratic nominees. But no, I don't actually really think that. I, I I think I frankly think that it's despicable what the Democrats have done to to Republican nominees. But why do you think uh, your party is is willing to engage in the p- politics of personal destruction over the court? So. Right. I was going to say over the court, I was right. Politics of personal destruction writ large. Um, You know, it's an it's an interesting question. You know, I want to reject the premise um, because I would say it's not always been the party. It's been elements within it. Fair Um, enough. As we discussed in class, Joe Biden in 1991 was not leading the amplification of Anita Hill. Um, to the contrary, he was uncomfortable about um, adding the hearing. But he was um, leading attacks on Clarence Thomas. I, he was attacking Clarence Thomas, as we discussed, I think, in class during, right, during, more during, you know, part one of the hearings, like, right, like his legal views. I think it was less, as you would say, about character issues. Um, but, you know, the the larger point that I am not certain about is why have the intensity of the attacks been sporadic? And I think I said that to you in class, Denver. So I don't know the answer, right? Um, right so you're, you're, it seems that you're suggesting where there's smoke, there's fire, right? So... so- that, that the Democrats didn't go after Gorsuch that way. They didn't go after Amy Coney Barrett that way. So therefore, you think that the attacks on, on the other three, that there so, might be some truth to them. So so obviously, this is, pros- this is an interesting question because there's process questions and there's substance questions. Right. So um, I actually do remember a last ditch effort against Gorsuch that went nowhere that had to do with, I think, like a, a student he was teaching at the University of Colorado that caught, you know, that 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 was um, that was baseless and didn't you know get any um, traction. Right. And um, there were actually some attacks against Alito about something he had written at Princeton about. The oh no! It was the concerned alumni of Princeton. It was a club he joined. Yeah. Um. So, it you know it's an interesting question. I think that this is going to be a funny and somewhat counterintuitive response that I that you know you can think through. In general, Democrats have nominated, I think, more moderate justices who possibly didn't pose as much of a threat to the future of the court. So I feel comfortable saying that. Um, a, a proposition with which we fervently disagree. Right. Yeah, I, I was I was actually going to adjust that, not not even directly to fight about sort of what our, our different background views are. I, I think there's a more interesting sort of response to that, which is that because law schools and the academy are so far left, um, that it becomes like the mainstream of legal thought for a long time became sort of default left. And so what, even though I wouldn't describe them as you did moderate, I would say that you're more likely to get a leftist jurist from the pool of law schools that them, that is there therefore very firmly in the mainstream or even the quote unquote moderate of law schools. Um, 
Whereas by definition, an originalist or somebody who leans conservative is going to be uh, on the edges of the legal sort of establishment is what I would say. So, so I am, I am granting that our vantage point and where people fit on it is a, is a big factor. I guess where I'm going is people like Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan were more moderate picks among those in the quote unquote pool. But, um, but Jennifer, it doesn't fully address the underlying question of why have Democrats had huge personal attacks when it's been Bork, Thomas, and Kavanaugh, but not Souter, not really Roberts, not really. I think I think it has to do with the fact that you know they. Um, I think they try. They they try to throw up a bunch of things and see what will stick. And sometimes things stick because they catch sort of public attention or there's a witness who's willing to testify to something. Um, but I think I think they're vi- they're as vicious as they can be in most cases. And they don't really care who it is, to be honest with you. I mean, you remember that press release. I think it was before Kavanaugh was named, but it might have been one of the other Trump appointees that said, you know, we oppose XXXXX, you know, fill in the blank of who the nominee will be, because this person is a threat to our liberties and blah, 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 blah. And the person hadn't even been named yet. So Jennifer, you're going to be surprised because remember, you know, card carrying member of the Democratic Party. I think the Dems dialing up opposition to Kavanaugh to a 10 or an 11 before the hearings was very unwise. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, and, you know, we, we can, we can discuss this in depth, but um, I think a lot of it has to do with what they view the role of the court as they view the role of the court as political. They view the role of the court as a super legislature. So for them, the stakes are higher. Um, whereas, I mean, the stakes are high for us because we want to protect the constitution, of course, but we're not expecting uh, from nominees um, of particular political outcomes. And so therefore it's easier just to focus on things like qualifications or you know, things that bore the American public like judicial philosophy. Um, you know, because that's what really we're concerned about. Whereas, whereas the Democrats are concerned with outcome, and and therefore all is fair in love and war, because they they do view it as part of the political war. You know, I'm actually, I'm actually going disagree, to disagree with you here, Jennifer. Uh, I think, especially as conservatives are pushed more and more. Um, into a box by previous Supreme Court decisions. So once you start the process of the Supreme Court being an active player in political issues, right? I mean, just to 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 pick the the one that gets the most lightning rod, right? Um, as soon as abortion became a a judicial issue rather than a state legislature issue, right? Um, I, I think you're going to, it's inevitable that conservatives are also going to be looking for litmus tests, outcome-based um, once, once the court is a player in rough and tumble pol- politics, I think it's very, very hard to maintain a line where one side um, is looking only at neutral qualifications and the other one um, is looking for political outcomes. I think that's that's like an untenable. I, don't know. I, th- I think we've done a good job. I think our side has done a good job in in looking for people who aren't 
you know, promising one thing or the other on any issue um, and who we believe are going to tether their decisions to, to the text of the Constitution and the statutes as passed by Congress. But it hasn't always worked out for us. But right. I, I think that, that, that outlook itself is now so marginalized in our politics that adhering to that outlook is itself considered political. Right. I, right. I, I will I will both sides this. I think, you know, Barack Obama was never going to nominate someone who thought Roe v. Wade was wrong. And I didn't think Donald Trump was going to nominate someone who thought it was right. So Inez, just to use your example, um, I think part of it, back to your previous point, Inez, is the polarization, which is that the legal and political alignment has never been stronger since 2010. And I, I I think Jennifer's point about it doesn't always end up that way is that there has been drift and it's been more often Republicans drifting. But since 2010, the, the political party of the president and the general ideology of the nominee have overlapped. And well, I think that's very much, um, you know, that's very much a, a function of, of having an originalist movement in the in the law school, starting with that speech in 1983, was it of um, Edward Edward Amis, right? Ed Meese made that speech. I think it was in 1983 about how conservatives actually have to have, uh, you know, um, an academic presence. They have to have a bench, and that bench has to have ideological content, um, even if that ideological content is we're going to enforce the Constitution as written and understood. Um, then it's it's still ideological content and it was necessary. And I think that's why we're seeing, I mean, I think the, the track record of um, the conservative legal movement since then has been moderately successful in the sense that, that our justices today, our nominees, Republican nominees, um, I would say are, are more in line um, with that judicial philosophy than say what you're talking about, the drift of previous Republican nominees. Yeah. Um, I think they've been successful, not perfectly successful, but more successful than Republican presidents have been in the past. Um, and I think that goes back to the point of the fact that the legal academy and the pool is is by default left. And so this is also just to circle back to something that we talked about, right? Um, it's always going to, to come up in the hearings because actually for a while, Republicans would actively have to hide any views they might have had um, in, in terms of, and I'm not talking about raw political issues, I'm talking about judicial philosophy views. Um, think about somebody like Roberts, right? Um, who who didn't really have a big ideological paper trail. Um, that's that's difficult for Republicans to know which way it, or how a justice will think or rule, right? Yeah. Um, because that paper trail was intentionally hidden because the hearings got so acrimonious and because yeah. after Bork, right, there was this period where people just hid their political views. And then it was very, very difficult for Republicans to sort through, okay, how are you going to rule potentially on these kinds of important legal issues that we actually mm -hmm. care about? And and that's where I thought the list, and I think Jennifer, you and I have chatted about this. I thought Trump's list in 2016, which in some ways was his effort to prove to conservatives, right? Hey, I, I will make sure to put judges on who are originalists and have this view, the list ended up in that regard, you, I think, uniting 
the right. political right. Yeah, I mean, politically, it was interesting because it came it came out at a time when when candidate Trump was being attacked by Senator and candidate Ted Cruz, Cruz for yeah. for not being sufficiently conservative, and and the list was really an attempt to say, you know, to all you Cruz voters, you know, look, this is what I'm going to give you. I I, I get mm-hmm. it. Um, but anyway, I want to transition away from the list and sort of the politics of, of past nominations to the current nomination. And I think that um, Inez has a video that she can play um, that just tees up the, the selection of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> we want to begin with a historic moment for this country. Today, News. President Biden nominated 51-year-old Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And if confirmed, she would be the first black woman on the nation's highest court. CBS's Jan Crawford joins us now on this historic day. Good evening, Jan. Good evening, Nora. You know, Judge Jackson's remarks today were personal, like a real glimpse into her life. She began by thanking God for putting her on this path and her parents, who she said have always inspired and supported her. For too long, our government, our courts haven't looked like America. Fulfilling a campaign promise, President Biden made history as he introduced the first black woman ever nominated to the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. I do know that one can only come this far by faith. Among my many blessings, and indeed the very first, is the fact that I was born in this great country. From the beginning, the federal appeals court judge was the frontrunner with stellar academic and legal credentials and a compelling life story. Growing up in Florida, the daughter of educators in a family of law enforcement, she said in her high school yearbook, I want to eventually have a judicial appointment. Her resume reads like that of a future justice. Graduating with honors from Harvard and Harvard Law, she clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Stephen Breyer, the man she's nominated to replace. Another first, Jackson would be the court's first former federal public defender. I take extra care to communicate with the defendants who come before me in the courtroom. A mother of two daughters, Jackson acknowledged the gravity of her nomination. I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. And now we turn to the confirmation process. Jackson will start having courtesy visits with senators next week. And with the Democratic majority, uh, the White House is hoping for a smooth and swift Senate confirmation. Nora? And Jan, if she's confirmed to the Supreme Court, what are some examples of the cases she'd have to weigh in on? Oh, well, I mean, right away at the beginning of next term, there's three blockbusters on some of the most contentious issues of our time. They've got a major case on voting rights from Alabama. There's an affirmative action case, the use of race in college admissions, and then another look at whether or not designers and artists uh, can refuse to take on same-sex couples as clients. So she would hit the ground running, Nora. Jan Crawford at the Supreme Court. Thank you. Jennifer? <laughs> I think Jennifer. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, it was a little frozen. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to bring in Mike Davis now from the Article 3 Project to talk about the Jackson nomination. Um, Mike, what do you think of the nomination? 
Um, well, I mean, Judge Jackson uh, is, is a historic nomination. She's the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Democrats are celebrating that. Um, I think what they fail to mention is, is that they have a three decades long pattern and practice of viciously attacking and opposing uh, women and minority uh, judicial nominees from Republican presidents. Uh, we saw this with Clarence Thomas's uh, nomination. We saw this with the first, who should have been the first black woman on the Supreme Court, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, uh, uh, back in 2004 uh, to 2006, then Senator Joe Biden, um, now Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, now Senate Majority Whip and Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, they all filibustered her nomination. And they filibustered her nomination because they didn't want a Republican president to appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court. They also did this with Miguel Estrada. Miguel Estrada uh, was a, a Hispanic nominee uh, uh, that who President George W. Bush nominated. And the, the same Democrats blocked his nomination. They filibustered his nomination because they didn't want a Republican president to appoint the first Hispanic to the Supreme Court. So at the Article Three Project, we kept the receipts on all these Priscilla Owens. There's so many of these, these nominees. Uh, let me give you so, some examples of this. With uh, Just with President, President Trump had 21 appellate uh, nominees between uh, J uh, Judge Amy Coney, uh, Justice Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, plus 20 Federal Circuit Court nominees. And for your listeners, they probably know this, but the Federal Circuit Courts are critically important. Uh, they're the federal courts of appeals, the last stop for more than 99% of federal appeals. President Trump had 20 nominees from uh, who were women and minorities on the federal circuit courts. And if you look at the record of Chuck Schumer, the number one Senate Democrat, he voted against 95% of President Trump's uh, diverse women and minority appellate court nominees. Uh, Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat, voted against 84% of them. Uh, and excuse me, actually, it may have been 81%. And uh, Senator Whitehouse, the, uh, the, the senator from Rhode Island who belongs to the all-white beach club uh, and refuses to, to, to resign from his all-white beach club when they pointed out to him that he belongs to an all-white beach club, he voted against 71% of these diverse nominees um, from President Trump. So these Democrats pretend like they care about diversity on the federal bench, but then they vote in lockstep against uh, uh, Republican appointed women and, and minority judicial nominees. Just, just want to put in a plug here for Justice Cardozo as potentially the first Hispanic <laughs> in the 1930s. But, uh, but yeah. continue. Let's continue mixing it up. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they, 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 they say they support diversity, but as, as you just so clearly laid out, Mike, diversity is really just a pretext for politics for for the Democrats because for power. They care about power. That's all they care about is power. power. Right. Yes. If representation were truly important to them, um, they wouldn't oppose so many well-qualified women and and minority candidates um, that come before them. And I mean, we've we've talked about this at IW a lot. There's you know there's even that memo to Durbin that says we need to oppose uh, Miguel Estrada because among other things he's Latino. I mean, yeah. it's, it's completely discriminatory. Um, but then the same people stand up there and say, well, what we really need is representation on the court. Um, well, well, we just saw this, Jennifer, with this, with this, the three finalists for, for President Biden. One of them was Michelle Childs, 
a federal district court judge down in South Carolina who had the support from the House Majority Whip, the top, uh, the, the number three House Democrat, who was the highest ranking black uh, politician, and uh, also Senator Lindsey Graham. Michelle Childs, according to the left, was, you know, she was she wasn't she didn't fit the bill, even though she's a black woman. She didn't fit the bill because she uh, uh, because she wasn't insane. And she when she was in private practice, she had corporate clients. So that disqualified her to groups like Demand Justice and other left wing radical groups. So if, when they pretend like this is about diversity, it's not. This is about power. So, Dan, let me ask you this. Uh, sure. I know I know you you like the nomination. You're pleased with the nomination. But what I want to ask you is, is there even a vacancy? Justice Breyer has said, it's, it was very odd, his formulation, different than any other justices I've seen before. He announced his intent to retire in June, at the end of the term, assuming that his successor has been confirmed. Um, doesn't this give Senator McConnell and the Republicans an opportunity to say, we're not going to vote. There's no vacancy. So it's funny. You you gave me homework, Jennifer, and I blew the assignment. Um, and by the way, hi, Mike. Uh, hi, Dan. How are you doing? <laughs> good. Um, sorry, I came in so hot. No, 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 no. The, the, this is good. Um, I, I wanted to look up. Do you remember O'Connor initially was stepping down and it was going to be Roberts for associate, and then she stayed on because it was Harriet Myers and then Sam Alito. Right. So I, I actually, I did. I, I checked it out because I didn't so remember. What was the language? Was. Yeah. What was O'Connor's letter? So O'Connor, when O'Connor resigned, her her announced her intent to resign, she figured that the person would be confirmed over the summer after the term was over and that the person would then take her spot before um, the October term began. But what happened was in the interim that Chief Justice Rehnquist died. Labor Day. Um, right. And so and so because of that, um, John Roberts, who had been appointed to replace O'Connor, uh, President Bush decided that he was going to move um, John Roberts into the Chief Justice slot mm -hmm. or that he'd like to nominate him for that. And so O'Connor agreed to stay on because of the unusual circumstance okay. um, that, that the chief had died. Um, but as soon as her replacement was confirmed, she was gone. In other words, O'Connor agreed to stay on until her successor had been confirmed. In this case, if the Senate voted tomorrow to confirm Ketanji Brown-Jackson as Supreme Court justice, there's no vacancy because Justice Breyer says he's not leaving till June. Uh, and, and they just scheduled for March 21st. I see where you're going. If the vote precedes the end of the term, it's like musical chairs. Who actually get... And, and some of you might also know, Stevens and Douglas had a little bit of a weird situation there too, where Stevens had had a... Uh, sorry, Douglas had a bad stroke and was still coming by the Supreme Court. And they had to sort of stop him from attending things. Um, I'm guessing Breyer will revise his letter when it looks like the votes are there. I, I guess that would be that would be my that he would he would send and not an participate in the final decisions of the term. The cases he's already heard argued. I I don't think so. What do you think, Mike? 
So how, I, I think that uh, I, I wish there were uh, I, I wish this there were a way to to block these nominees for the rest of this term, but unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think that there there is a way here. I um, what I what happens is that you can confirm a nominee, and then they don't take their seat until they get the both the commission from the president, and then they have to take two oaths. They have to That's take right. a, an oath from it, it, it's the oath of, that is given by the executive branch, and then. There's the judicial oath. That's judicial oath. So you have to take you, you get the commission plus the two oaths, and then you can become a justice. So sure. you can you can be confirmed and just wait to get your commission and take your oath so, until. So uh, so so Mike co- so Mike confirmed, but sort of not yet actively doing the role. You until- have to be appointed. Remember, this is Marbury versus Madison. The, the this is the original case about. You have to after you're confirmed, you have to be sworn in and you have to be appointed, right? And you, you and that's that the commission. You have to get your commission in order yeah. to do that. I wish, Jennifer. I, I, I wish. This is the I first time that we're going to be excited for the actual on point like facts of the case rather yeah. than judicial. I, I think there's only one way you can stop this nominee, and it would be if the meaning if all 50 Democrats are on board. There's only one way you can stop this nomination, and that is if there is a boycott and not one Republican senator shows up for the vote on the Senate Judiciary. Is that a quorum? Well, there's there's a there's a committee quorum that requires two um, that, that requires two members of the minority, but you can override that with the floor. But the parliamentarian has ruled that you would uh, the, under the under the Senate rules, you need one Republican at the committee vote in order to pass her out of committee. But that would okay. just be the absolute nuclear option to not show up and, and, and kill her in committee. And that's just, it's just not going to happen. And, and then what, and what about the entire Senate? Uh, it's, it, you can confirm a judicial nominee with, you need, you need, you'd have to have all 50 Democrats. And if, and they, if you have no other Republicans, v- the Kamala Harris Harris. Vote to tie as the yeah. vice president. Yeah. So, so what is going to happen, Mike? What will the Republicans put up any sort of fight, and and if so, on what grounds? I mean, I do think that they need to. So, look, I handled Supreme Court nomination. I handled Justice Kavanaugh's nomination as the chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee, chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I think what Republicans did there was both wrong and politically stupid, and they. They t- it was 2018 in a year when Republicans should have lost Senate seats. When Democrats yeah. picked up House seats, they actually we actually sent four Senate Democrats into early retirement because they acted like uh, uh, complete buffoons during the Kavanaugh confirmation. I think that Republicans should treat uh, Judge Jackson with the respect that any Supreme Court nominee should be treated, but they should also... Uh, uh, they should also fulfill their constitutional duty, and that is to thoroughly investigate her background, vet the nominee, look at her, all of her writings, uh, all of her speeches, all of her judicial opinions, uh, do a thorough vetting like we do with every other judicial nominee. And I think that it's very fair to ask her about her judicial philosophy. They should grill her on her judicial philosophy. They should grill her on her ideology. I think those even Chuck Schumer backed her in 2005 during John Roberts's nomination said that those were fair games. So under the Schumer standard, you can uh, uh, judicial philosophy and ideology are critically important. Also under the Dick Durbin standard, the number two Senate Democrat and the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, you can ask her about specific issues and, and make sure that she's not outside of the mainstream 
on specific issues, including executive power. So, uh, you know, President Biden thinks he has the unilateral power to to uh, to force people to take vaccines that they don't want or they can get fired. So I think it's that those are fair game to ask Judge Jackson about those. I think it's very fair game to ask about uh, in 2015, for example, she as a federal district court judge, she contorted the Freedom of Information Act to protect one of Hillary Clinton's top aides from disclosing her emails under FOIA, right? So Judge Jackson protected one of Hillary Clinton's top aides who had private emails. He was basically doing official business on his private email. Those are subject to FOIA. She contorted FOIA to protect him. Fast forward four years, she uh, she uh, eviscerated 230 years of constitutional law to, to rule that President Trump's White House counsel had to testify against him. Uh, that was uh, reversed on appeal, but you know, there, there's a there is a there is a political streak to Judge Jackson's rulings that need to be fully explored by the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, this this loops back around to the issue we started out this episode with, right? Which is the line between what what's fair game in one of these hearings and what isn't. And I think you're drawing a very fair standard between you know, judicial philosophy, past writings. Um, you know, even past actions as it relates to the law, um, I think are all or should be fair game. Is there, Dan, I, I don't know um, if you would weigh in on this for me. Um, do you think there's any hope to returning to that standard, which is an aggressively political hearing with regard to actual substantive legal issues, even if, as we discussed, they're likely to be, you know, um, they're likely to be discussed at, at a very, very surface level. Um because of the, tele the, the televised hearings and everything. But, um, you know, is there any hope to returning to at least that standard where the hearings are political, but not viciously nasty? And, and the example I would give for that um, is something Jennifer and I were talking about before, which is uh, the Merrick Garland hearings, right? Where there was a political decision made that they were going to not hold the vote for this guy. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to be digging through like his trash, right? Um, we're not going to be playing in the, the politics of personal character assassination. We're just gonna make a political decision about a nominee. It's it's such an interesting question. Jennifer, we talked about this earlier in the week of, would you rather, if you were Merrick Garland, would you rather have had a hearing when people took shots at you or would you rather have not? And I think what Jennifer and I talked about was did he emerge unscathed and is he the attorney general now because of what happened in 2016? It's actually a really interesting question. Um, I remember a lot of people saying Garland deserves a hearing, period, right? Um, so I think hearings are going to be the norm. Um, I really, really hope that we can, you know, reach some level where where it is really about legal views um and and nothing more but i have to say that there is the role of the media that the sense that, that they enjoy sometimes these stories that are sensationalistic right so like in, you know some, some yeah well the, the media is going to do what it's going to do anyway but would you either of you support um the judiciary committee doing its work behind closed doors without cameras? Would that help things? Would it depoliticize? 
Mike, go for it. You're, you're, you're more experienced working there than I am. Yeah, I worked for Senator Grassley, who's the top Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee, was the prior chairman. He's he wants to, he wants to have cameras in federal courtrooms, and so there's just no chance that he would close off the Judiciary Committee from the public. Um, there is a private element to the the hearing. We do have closed session. There's a closed session as part of the nomination hearing on the last day, the, the last evening of the last day, where senators. Go the the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, members go uh, sit with the nominee and and select staffers and go over their FBI background investigation, their uh, financial records to to question them about private matters so they don't humiliate the nominee, but they can figure out if there are you know issues that should be resolved. Frankly, that's what should have happened with Kavanaugh's allegations, but uh, then. Uh, then ranking member Diane Feinstein didn't even bother to show up for the closed session, right? When she could have asked him about those allegations that Christine Blasey Ford, the fake allegations that Christine Blasey Ford made against uh, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh. So there is a private com a component to the hearing. Uh, there's also, I mean, if you want to step back, there's there's also the, the Senate staff, uh, you know, I did this along with other staffers. You question the nominee before their hearing as well. So you, you question them about their background investigation. You, uh, you uh, have both sides, the Republican and the Democrat staffers question the, no the nominee before they go to their hearing, then they have their hearing, they have the public part of their hearing, and then they have the closed session at the end of the hearing. And then there are questions for the record after the hearing. Senators have the opportunity to sit down and meet with the nominee before the hearing. They can meet with the nominee after the hearing. There are plenty of opportunities to vet these Supreme Court nominees. And, and I guess even, even if the hearings were held behind closed doors, I mean, that wouldn't stop someone like Ted Kennedy from you know, going into the well of the Senate and giving the Bob Borks America speech, right? I mean, they yeah. could still sure. manipulate yeah. the media and the public to believe that somebody you know, was an evil racist, uh, even without a hearing. So, so maybe that wouldn't solve the problem. Yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes I wish there were better prepared senators overall that could ask sharper questions and would coordinate better. One thing that I've considered or thought about is sometimes bringing, you know, what, what if you bring in someone to ask, you know, certain questions about certain areas of law, then then the other part of me says, wait a minute, these senators are elected, they should be able to do it themselves, right? So I, in some ways, I'm of two minds here. Well, we did that with Rachel Mitchell with Christine Blasey right. Ford's allegations, um, and um, no, I hear I hear you, Dan. It's there, I don't. I mean, so when I list like when I listen to Macy Hirono, I'm just like, how how the heck did this person graduate from law school? How did she graduate from high school? And how the hell is she a U.S. senator? Um, the dumbest senator ever elected in U.S. history. And you listen to her questioning, and you're like, where is this coming from? Uh, but then. You know, we have Republicans who ask bad questions, too. So I hear you. Um, yeah, I, I have long. I don't usually I am quite I, I'm very aggressive in my politics, but I, I've never I really do try to stay away from insulting people personally. I've never been able to stay away from the contention that Macy Hirono is just dumb. Um, but so I'm glad to hear that somebody else is, is uh, willing to say this out loud. Because I think if there, if there were a secret vote in the Senate, it would be 99 to 1 on who is, if, if Macy Hirono is the dumbest colleague they have. So um, I, I think she's up there. Um, just, just yes, I, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe if, if uh, we think about wrapping up here, um, what, what do both of you predict 
uh, going forward. What do you think the most important issues, perhaps clumsily raised by uh, by senators, perhaps not? And um, what do you think the most important judicial issues uh, that can and should be raised? I know, Mike, you, you already listed a few, but um, Dan, what do you think uh, are, are the issues that, that should come up? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, okay. One, one other point. Sometimes what you think are the big issues at the moment aren't. Uh, Justice Stevens didn't get asked any questions in 1975 about Roe v. Wade, right? So some big issues are, you know, navigating our relationship with technology and, of course, government regulation um, of it, you know, the size of government itself, the, the role of agencies and what role they can play. Um, and then as we saw um, in that little oh, clip that Jennifer really showed, uh, next next term's got some big cases. And you know what I predict? That Judge Jackson will say, I just can't speak about those issues because they might come before me. I think, you know, that's not a bold prediction, right? But uh, voting that's rights and race cool. going forward. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would love to hear her, by the way, on issues of agency power. I mean, that's not like a, a sexy media issue. It's very difficult to uh, write in a salacious way about administrative law. But um, I, I would love to hear her, at least on, even if she won't answer about particular cases, at least her, her general philosophy, because it seems to me that that is an issue that might cut ideologically, but also... Um, you know, has some some cross ideological currents there that that could get quite interesting. So, I mean, Scalia. I mean, Scalia famously changed his mind about this, but Scalia was on the majority, I believe, for Chevron, right? So he liked it uh, for a while, and then sort of slowly started to change his mind. This is one of those things. I would I would love to hear somebody ask her uh, about her views on on that whole line of cases. But but Jennifer, you want to wrap us up this Thursday at, at the bar? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I know that one thing that Leader McConnell's already asked her about is court packing. Um, not something that she would necessarily be asked to rule on, but something that uh, her mentor, Justice Breyer, had come out very strongly against, um, as had Justice Ginsburg, and she refused to give the leader assurances on that. So that could be an interesting line of questioning, um, because I think it would elicit uh, her ideas about the role of the court in a representative democracy and about um, the role of the three branches of government vis-a-vis -vis each other. Um, so I, I would certainly be interested in, in pressing her further on that. We'll see what the senators decide to do. Um, anyway, tune in next time. We will be back again in two weeks for another edition of At the Bar. Thank you, Dan and Mike, for joining us. We really appreciate your insights. Um, for those of you who like to listen to this on a, a podcast, you can get, you can listen to At the Bar and all of our back episodes on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you get your podcasts, or you can watch a replay on uh, Facebook, YouTube, or IWF.org. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks for another spirited conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks.